It's all, I think it was mainly my prayer that made the book, but made it go a little, you know, out, out of the way. But everybody else joined in, you know, that was good. We sure are keeping up in prayer. There's the disaster in Puerto Rico is much more extensive than was imagined. So we're keeping prayer there that not only for restoration and preservation of life, but also that people will turn to the Lord as a result of this. Hard to imagine. Tonight I'm going to be speaking on the common sense of group bias, group bias, and I'm not going to get too technical on it. You have to go all the way back to insight with Bernard J.F. Lonergan to study that in detail. The common sense of group bias. If I were to do a long title, I'd call it the common sense of group bias, B-I-A-S, versus uncommon divine wisdom. Now, let's take a couple of moments of preparation. Father, you've opened a door of opportunity. We pray that you'll allow us to grasp the grace that's necessary to make the most of it. That this congregation may be a true glory to you and a glory to Christ our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. Romans 11. This is my translation. Take a good look, Paul says. He's still rebuking, reproving, and hopefully correcting an enthusiasm on the part of certain Gentile Christians. It's a significant faction of Gentile Christians, a group, and they were they had they held a certain group bias under the limited and restricted way of thinking that we like to call common sense. And it was a wrong common sense. There are five identifiable groups in Romans, and I really do intend to teach the book of Romans next after Better Call Paul and after a short stint in the pastoral epistles, a very important segue. But there are five groups that are divisions and really divisive portions of the saints in Rome. Paul's trying to square that away and fix that up by the word of God. So he says, take a good look then. He's writing to Gentile Christians. Remember, listen up, Gentile Christians, 1113. I'm speaking to you now, Paul says, ever since verse 13. Take a good look then at the kindness and harshness of God. Harshness or severity to those who fell. Now we have to ask if Paul's actually doing the talking here or if he's echoing the thoughts of these Gentile Christians similarly to how Jesus echoed the thoughts 
of his Jewish disciples who had an arrogance against the Gentiles. They had an anti-Gentilism, as some of these Gentile Christians have an anti-Jewish Christian stance. And so is Paul echoing their thinking? I think I'll let you decide for yourselves. Take a good look then at the kindness and the harshness of God. Harshness to those who fell. And he uses the word pipto here, which is exactly what the hardened part of Israel did not do. Pipto, fall, meaning fall headlong. He said they did not, in verse 11, they did not ptio in order to pipto, did they? They didn't trip in order to fall headlong be destroyed totally, did they? And the answer is, of course not. Meganoito, of course they did not. So he's echoing a word that they use, pipto. Take a good look then at the kindness and harshness of God. Harshness, let's call it severity, it's in most translations, to those who fell. But again, this is exactly the kind of permanent fall that Israel did not do and that the Gentile Christians who were biased Assume that they did. Even when that word pipto is used and talks about a more extreme fall, as it does in Romans 14.4, Paul adds, the Lord is able to make the one who falls to stand again. I think he's alluding to Psalm 37.24. Though he falls, he will not be utterly cast down. And that's also found in the Septuagint of 3624 of Psalms. Take a good look, Paul says, then at the kindness and harshness of God. Harshness to those who fell and kindness toward you. He used the word Christotes here, which is interesting, and I'll probably follow up on that in a more detailed exegesis. There was a, a Roman historian who talked about the Claudian expulsion. Claudius was an emperor who kicked out the Jews and a lot of Jewish Christians out of Rome and banned them from Rome. And I believe it was the Roman historian Suetonius who said the reason was because of a furor and a tumult made around a man whose name was Christos, and he misspelled Christos. But Christos means kind. It means beneficent, benevolent. And so... Paul might be playing on this. So there's a little concealed Christological chord here that I think is interesting, but it'd be fun to follow up on in a more detailed exegesis. But I'm doing everything I can to limit this because I have kind of a goal to finish Romans 11 in a fairly soon, within a few messages. It's a goal that I have that hopefully I'll be able to accomplish here by the grace of God. So take a good look then at the harshness, the kindness and harshness of God. Harshness to those who fell. That's the broken off branches. That's the part of Israel that God hardened. Was God showing harshness or severity and kindness toward you? But notice what he says then. If you remain, if you continue in his kindness, his beneficence, we would say today in his good graces, I want to be in the good graces of my boss because if I don't continue in his good graces, I could get fired. And so you're 
dependent on a human being who might be fickle. He might, you might be in your, his good graces one day and not in the next, but God isn't like a man. He doesn't do that kind of stuff. God isn't all about being in good graces toward you, you being in good graces, his good graces one day and not the next day. God is all about a continuing grace even in our faithlessness. He remains faithful even if we become or even if we are faithless. That's a 2 Timothy 2.13. So let's take a look at it without commentary. Take a good look then at the kindness and harshness of God. Harshness to those who fell, those against whom you have a bias or a prejudice, and kindness toward you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you, like them, will be cut off. Paul is showing the fallacy here, the futility of the common sense of group bias. I could do something in a social commentary today to show the various factions in our country that are biased, their group And each group has its bias, and it makes a divisiveness. And Lonergan was very smart to say that one day there could be a trivial catalyst, like one related to the NFL thing lately. It's a trivial catalyst, but it can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It can be anything now is like matches being thrown at a pool of gasoline. Little things here, little things there. Leaders without wisdom stirring up the controversy rather than living above it and speaking into it, speaking peace into it. Groups reacting, reacting, remaining in the common sense of group bias and reacting toward one another until finally there is something like a civil war. And so this has, if I wanted to do a prophetic social commentary on our nation I could and I just might when we get to the Romans but that's not my point my point is to give you some assurance here of God's plan and to challenge you to think beyond the common sense of group bias and live in the uncommon wisdom of the mind of Christ and the plan of God So Paul here is showing the fallacy of the common sense of the group bias. The Gentile Christians who despise their Jewish brothers who are weak in faith. Quote, they are weak, the weak in faith. You read all about these guys, all the groups in Romans 14 and 15. The assumption of these Gentile Christians is that branches were broken off from the olive tree, as Jeremiah calls Israel, Jeremiah 11, 16 to 19, branches were broken off from Israel to accommodate them as Gentiles because, as the reasoning is revealed here, Israel obviously had not continued in God's kindness or remained in his good graces. This assumes that God has kind of a capricious character on the one hand and that he demands merit. On the other hand, this, this presupposes a contract rather than a covenant, a unilateral covenant of divine fidelity no matter what. So that's how they're thinking. 
Most Christians think in terms of a two-way contract with God. And ultimately, they end up with an idol whom they call Jesus Christ, but it's another Jesus. That's the only way I can tolerate people taking the name Jesus in vain. Even on network TV now, they're allowed to. But the only way I can tolerate that is if I know they're talking about another Jesus. Because if they were talking about the Jesus I know, they couldn't say his name that way. So they have a concept of Jesus that's rooted in a Christian group bias, really, not in the Bible, not in the Scriptures. Now, if that's the case... That the Jewish Christians were broken off because they didn't remain in God's good grace or continue in his kindness. Then the Gentile Christians can only be assured of remaining in the olive tree if they continue in God's kindness. Or if they remain in God's good graces. If God doesn't suddenly wake up one morning in a bad mood and say, I've had it with you guys. If not, they too will be cut off, he says. Even the common sense. Now, this is a word, common sense. I'm going to try to make some sense out of common sense. I like what Lonergan said about it. He says, to err is human. And we know the rest of that quote, and to forgive is divine. But he says, to err, E-R-R, is human. And common sense is all too human. So common sense, what common sense does is it goes so far and then it stops asking the questions that would reveal answers that would make them insecure about their group or about their opinions or about their convictions. It only goes so far. It's limited. Got to have common sense. But it must be sublated into a higher integration of thinking which is uncommon wisdom. And so we're going to take that tack tonight. So even the common sense of this thinking of the Gentile Christians is flawed. However, Paul does not operate, and neither does he argue on the level of common sense. For him, common sense is sublated. That's a word that Lonergan uses, and it's a very rare word, but it means that it's placed in a higher integration, but it's placed under things that are more important. Uncommon wisdom is the mind of Christ, the thinking of Christ. It's what happens when your thinking is transformed, when your thinking is renewed by the Holy Spirit and the Word. You still have common sense on a certain level, but it's subordinate to a higher wisdom. Now, the lack of that higher wisdom may end up in the end of our nation as we know it. The lack of that wisdom may end up in the end of this nation. Don't think this nation is as secure as people say it is in its position among the nations. The only thing I know that's secure is the word of God. All flesh is as grass. 
but the word of our God abides forever. I know that. My security is there. It is not in anything else. It's not in anything to do with the flesh, even if that flesh is united by the millions in a group bias. There's a lot of group bias going on right now. And this one is one that doesn't understand the plan of God. Paul does not operate and argue on the level of common sense. His common sense is sublated in a higher integration of uncommon wisdom. The mind of Christ is what it's called in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the mind of Christ. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been able to be his advisor? But we have the mind of Christ. Uncommon wisdom is the mind of Christ and the salvific wisdom of God. God's wisdom is always related to his plan of salvation. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15, Timothy, you have known the scriptures from your youth, which are able to make you wise with regard to salvation, the salvation that is by the faithfulness that is in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is profitable, for doctrine, for reproof, what he's doing here, and for correction. Correction goes beyond reproof. You can say that's the wrong way to think, but correction says here's the right way. It is a, an instruction in righteousness, an instruction in righteousness that is necessary. Paul has been granted this wisdom by God. The writer of Second Peter, who has the collection of Paul's epistles, says, Our beloved brother Paul has spoken in all his epistles about these things, meaning the new creation, and a new creation that is rooted in divine righteousness, according, he says, to the wisdom that was given to him. This wisdom is not common sense. This wisdom is the uncommon wisdom of God that detects a plan of salvation for all humankind that discerns a horizon of universal redemption and that sees a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. The group think as it's called, groupthink, group-think, of group bias by a faction of Gentile Christians in Rome was merely a flawed common sense. It was a form of thinking which actually eliminated Christ and the logic of the cross from its curriculum. It was a kind of thinking that actually limits itself to the degree of eliminating Christ and the logic of the cross from its thinking. So it made harsh judgments about its Jewish siblings, fellow Jewish Christians. Consequently, it was blinded to the vision of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the cross of Christ. 
So it's not a matter of continuing in God's good graces, but of God's unconditional continuing grace. Which continues even if we're faithful, faithless. He's already dealt with that. What if some did not believe? Does their unbelief cancel the faithfulness of God? Of course it doesn't. Let God be true even if every human being is a liar and unfaithful. Let God be true. And you, God, will be vindicated in the day when you are judged. Romans 3, 3, and 4. Again, with 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we, if we become or if we are unbelieving or faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Romans eleven twenty four. Paul says, For you see, he's talking now still, Gentile Christians. Hey, Gentile Christians, curb your enthusiasm. Because it's rooted in ignorance and conceit. For you see, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and the word is agri-eleo, and were contrary to nature, grafted into the cultivated olive tree, the word is kali-eleon, how much more will these, those that you're thinking so harshly about, the broken off branches, the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Even your common sense is flawed. What he's saying is you were cut off to be grafted in. They were cut off to be grafted in. There is no you and the others. The only other that's totally other than us is God, and he's totally other than us. We are all one as human beings, and certainly all one as the church, the body of Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no Gentile or barbarian. There is no refined or upper class or high-born or low-born. There is no class warfare, which some in group bias are attempting to foment today with the intention of deliberately destroying the fabric of our national entity. Paul is speaking of the eschatological salvific grafting in of the broken off branches to the olive tree. And he's using it as a leverage to reprove and hopefully to correct the elective elitist arrogance of a major faction of saints in Rome who are called the strong in faith because they have liberties but they despise the weak in faith who haven't grown into those liberties yet or who react because their liberty is really license and licentious living. 
So in Romans 11.25, he says, my siblings. Notice how he goes from a rather sharp tone to now a very tender one. My fellow, my brothers, Adelphoi, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. Siblings, I just say siblings, not to be fancy, but because it takes in both brothers and sisters. So Paul, who had been himself somewhat severe, now becomes kind and tender in his appeal to them. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. The cure for flawed common sense is a cognizance of the mystery a revealed wisdom of God that is all-saving. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. That translation, which is one I've kind of put together here, is a better translation than wise in your own eyes or wise in your own conceit. It actually means I don't want you to be sensible only in yourselves. I don't want you, in other words, to only think in terms of common sense. I've seen more people react and reject the gospel, and their reasoning is rooted in common sense. They think. But it's a very limited and restricted way to think. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. That is, I don't want you to be restricted to mere human common sense, which is a limiting but acceptable norm in your group. It's an acceptable norm of thinking in your group. I don't want you to be ignorant so that all you have is common sense in your group bias. I don't want you to continue anymore that way. I want you to know this mystery, a previously unknown but now disclosed secret of God's thinking. I want you to know this element of an uncommon wisdom. Namely, That hardness has come about in part of Israel. Only until, and I put the word only in there because the emphasis is clear. The hardness has come about in part of Israel. Part of Israel. Only until the totality of the Gentiles come in. The word come in means enters the kingdom of God. It's the same word used for entering into the kingdom of God, entering the Israel of God, their king. The totality of the Gentiles enter. And just to give you a heads up in case I don't get that far tonight, verse 26a, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What they need is a vision of a universal horizon, a universal saving horizon. That'll change. It's already done that to you guys. It has changed you. It's changed your thinking. You're kind of like saying what Paul said. If one died for all, then all died. From henceforth, therefore, I am controlled by the love of Christ for all humankind. 
with no partiality, with no favoritism, with no group bias. Oh, if that were the case today. We'd survive as a nation, not only as not, not only would Christianity survive, but our nation would survive. Paul wants his Gentile Christian siblings, and they are that. They are fellow believers. They are born of God. And he wants us today, and it's very important, this word must be heard today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the day of provocation when they were provoking God. Paul wants us to go beyond the limits of our own common sense. To err is human. Common sense is very human. It's not evil. It's just limited and restricted and becomes evil if it becomes part of a group bias that causes reaction and hatred against others or envy and jealousy and all the horrible bitterness and stuff that's going on. He wants us to think with the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5. He wants us to think with the mind of Christ, to intend with the thinking of Christ, to participate in Christ's own fidelity. That is, he wants us to think with the uncommon wisdom of God, wisdom that God has granted to Paul. Paul could be much more overbearing here. He could be very harsh if he wanted to because the wisdom he has is so far beyond the people he's writing to that it's not even comparable. It's like the heavens above the earth. But he's gentle. He's tender toward them, tender toward us. And he's drawing us into an uncommon wisdom. And it's a wisdom that's related to love, related to salvation, related to grace. So, this going beyond common sense and human wisdom is achievable as we look a little bit forward in Romans 12 too, only through a renewal of our thinking in the power of the Spirit and the Word. What's going on right here, in fact? Thinking only in the restrictive terms of common sense is a thinking that belongs only to the present evil age and to Adamic ontology, otherwise known as Paleo man. I saw a little snippet last night of Bill O'Reilly, and of course, you know, he's been famous for doing books like Killing Jesus, Killing Lincoln, Killing the Rising Sun. Now he's got one called Killing England. Well, today I said I'd like to do a book called Killing Paleo Man. Killing Paleo Man, the old man. That'd be a good book. I don't have time to write it. Maybe one of you will. You don't have to say, my pastor gave me this title. Just do it. Killing 
paleo man. Or you could say killing Adam. Now, by saying that this common sense belongs to this age, I don't mean that common sense is evil in itself, but that it must be surpassed if one is to understand the plan and purpose of God and appreciate God's extraordinary saving wisdom and his universal plan of salvific mercy, which is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. By saying that common sense belongs to the present evil age, I'm not saying that common sense is evil in itself, but that it is, has to be surpassed if one is to understand the plan and the purpose of God and appreciate his extraordinary saving wisdom and his universal plan of salvific mercy which is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate word made flesh. Guess what God's going to do when he takes out the stony heart, puts in the heart of flesh. Guess whose flesh that is? It's the heart of Christ. I'll take out your stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. The word became flesh. The heart is the heart of Christ. Christ lives in me, Paul said. As a Jew who had the stony heart taken out and a heart of flesh put in, and the heart of flesh is the heart and the mind of Christ. So it's a long sentence. I'll repeat it again. I don't mean that common sense is evil in itself, but that it must be surpassed if one is to understand the plan and purpose of God and if one is to appreciate his extraordinary saving wisdom and his universal plan of salvific mercy, which is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word and the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, also known as the liberator who comes out of Zion and removes ungodliness from Jacob. Think of that. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John one twenty nine, is the same person who's called the rescuer or the deliverer or the redeemer who comes out of Zion. That means he comes from the Davidic lineage. And he removes ungodliness. Ungodliness is a thing that's rooted deeper than sin. It's the motivation of sin. It's an idolatrous, wrong worship, which is the source of all sins. He takes away ungodliness from Jacob. That's coming up in verse 26. Verse, in fact, let's look at verse 26. A, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, this is where I get into the wrestling match of my life exegetically. This is when all exegesis is wrestling. It's hard work. It's difficult. You get hit with eight different things at once, and you're trying to say, well, it can't mean that. Maybe it means this, and then you go, and, and it's a wrestling. And this, I wrestled about this more than anything I've wrestled about in years. But I'm going to just give you a couple of possibilities. Thayer writes about this word, in this way. Please notice that. 
in this way is the word hutos in the Greek. And again, I'm not into detailed exegesis this time around, but it looks like this in the Greek text. It's O-U, but this is a hard breathing with an accent here, so it's hu, tos, with a omega O, O, omicron O, U, T, O, S, hutos. And it looks like this in the English transliteration. If you transliterate the Greek alphabetical characters into the English, it looks something like this. Hutos, the accent on the first syllable. In this way, it's translated in this way. So it doesn't really mean, and then, after all the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel will be saved. It actually says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. But... Thayer, Joseph Thayer, defines hutos. He says it refers to what precedes. So it's translated in the manner spoken of, in the way described. So if you go with that, then all Israel is saved by the very influx of Gentiles into Israel. But I think there's something else here. On the other hand, the same word Hutos, which is an adverb, but it also functions as a comparative adverb, and it also functions as a conjunction. That's why there's so much in every word. But it says in Romans 11.5, Paul uses that word, and he says, in this way, there is now a remnant according to the election of grace, and if it's grace, it's no more works. So, He might even have that still in his mind in the same way that an election was formed by pure unconditional grace, so all Israel will be saved by the action of God's pure unconditional grace. And I don't think we're off base to say that Romans 11.5 flows nicely into Romans 11.26. And this way... All Israel will be saved. So, so far, I think all these things are right. In this way, by God's unconditional grace and not by works, there's an election according to grace, a remnant according to the election of grace. But in this same way, all Israel in the future will be saved by the same grace of God that's unconditional. If it's unconditional, it has to be universal. That's more than common sense. That's kind of an uncommon wisdom of God, but it's also common sense. It's sublated into A divine wisdom. On the other hand, hutos may, and this is Thayer also, prepare the way for what follows. So we could say, and in this way, colon, what follows. Jesus said, when they said, teach us to pray, he said, pray this way, hutos. And then it was what followed. He said, our father, which is enough to do 30 messages on right there. Our father. Pray this way. So in that case, hutos goes this way. In the other way, it went this way. What preceded it. So in this way, all the Gentiles coming in, 
all Israel will be saved. But we could also say in this way, colon, when the liberator comes out of Zion and removes all ungodliness from Jacob, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, the point that I got into all these possibilities, it's like fighting with multiple opponents. I began to say, hold it, you guys, stop hitting me. You're all right. It's going to be according to the election of grace and no longer works. It'll be unconditional grace, just like the election of a remnant is now. But it's going to be all Israel. It's going to be concurrent with or slightly after the entrance of all the Gentile nations into Israel to make one Israel of God. And it's going to be when the parousia occurs, when the liberator comes out of Zion which very, by the very fact that he comes out of Zion means he comes from the Davidic lineage, which means that he's a Jewish savior, that he is a Jewish savior, that salvation comes from the Jews, which again kind of slaps in the face the Gentile ignorance and arrogance that somehow they bear the root rather than the root bearing them. It's amazing how many actions people take, symbolic or other words, because they assume they bear the root when it's the root that bears and sustains them. I have a mandate, though. My mandate Stay above the regular phrase. I like F-R-A-Y-S. I like what Jesus said when a man came to him and said, Hey, my brother and I are fighting over our parents' inheritance. Will you decide for us? And Jesus said, Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? I'm not stepping into that. But he said, I, do, I will tell you a lesson. Beware of covetousness which is the root of that question. That eventually kind of meanders into a a little parable called the rich man in Hades. (laughs) In other words, if you let covetousness go as far as it can go, that's where it lands you. Fortunately, covetousness only went so far as the cross of Christ. So nobody goes to hell for it. So then, and in this way, all Israel would be saved. Still again, hutas, therefore, can refer back to Romans 11.5. So again, we got it this way. Is it in this way, by the Gentiles coming in, all Israel will be saved? Or is it, This way, the liberator comes from Zion and all Israel is saved. He takes away ungodliness from Jacob. He just takes it away. I love those terms. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The liberator who comes from Zion, the Davidic lineage, which is already established in Romans 1.3, according to the flesh, katasarka, of the descendant of David. Zion means the place of the king, the place of David. The city of David, in fact, the city of David was called Zion. So 
the liberator comes from the lineage of David, and David comes from the lineage of the patriarchs, and the patriarchs are the first fruits of Israel in one sense. And so Paul is saying salvation comes from the Jews, so you Gentiles better realize it didn't come from you. It's the salvation that came from the Jews allows you in and sustains you. You don't sustain the root. The root sustains you. No. I sustain the root. Oh, you do? Not just me, but me and my group. Me and my community, me and my group. Ethnic, social, class, racial, both sides of an ethnic struggle, group bias on both sides. There needs to be a tree thrown into the bitter waters in our nation right now, and that tree is Calvary, or else we are done. We're done. And it will only take a trivial catalyst. It might have been called a trivial catalyst when a shot was fired that was heard around the world, but that shot was not a trivial thing. But it was the one thing that broke the camel's back and started a war called the Revolutionary War. All it takes is a trivial catalyst which sets people off against one another. A trivial catalyst can do it. And it can end in a cycle of violence that does not end until there's the total destruction of a national entity. One thing about group bias, and it's a false sense of patriotism. A false sense of patriotism gives you a false sense of security. And a false sense of patriotism sanitizes the lives of its founders in a wrong way, which is wrong too. You say, I'm convicted about Everybody should be convicted about this. I'm convicted about this. Everybody should be convicted about this because everybody has some form of restricted common sense rooted to some form of group bias. Everybody does. Everybody does. Everybody does. And only a transformation through the renewing of your mind pulls you up out of that muck. And that mire. And there's no love associated with that muck and mire. There's only hatred, bitterness, divisiveness, and mutual accusations. If you knew the impact that it's going to have on the destruction of this nation, you wouldn't even believe it. You won't believe what comes next. That's what God said to Habakkuk. He said, I'm going to do a thing in your age, in your day. You wouldn't believe it if I declared it. Now, there's positives to that as well as negatives. Could something of a nuclear proportion hit the breadbasket of the United States of America? Yes, it could. 
Could a renewal of the word of God transform the face of America and destroy the group bias of groups and bring in a true unity in Christ in, the, in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? Yes. And could that stave off a, an all-encompassing national disaster? Yes. I'm going to do a work in your day that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. He said to Habakkuk, and guess who Habakkuk is? The prophet that Paul quoted in the central Old Testament quotation of Romans. My righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. So we could say, in this way, by the influx of the totality of the nations, all Israel will be saved. Or we could say, in this way, by the liberator coming from Zion and taking away ungodliness from Jacob. Or, and so all Israel will be saved. In any case, and in every case, we know one thing for sure. All Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. It's true about all these things. All Israel will be saved because the liberator is going to come from Zion, the parousia in the eschaton, and take away ungodliness from Jacob. All Israel will be saved means that Gentiles will come into Israel to be the Israel of God with Israel. Right now, the Israel of God is a majority of Gentile Christians and a minority of Jewish Christians. In the eschaton, the Israel of God will be all Gentiles and all Jews that have ever lived. If in this way is the same as the case with the election of a remnant, then salvation is by God's unconditional grace, the salvation of all Israel. And it's mediated through Christ the liberator. But in any and all cases, any of these, I gave you all these options. I don't usually do that, but I'm just telling you just because once in a while I like to let you into my study and say this is the kind of stuff I love to wrestle with. It's a good exercise. But in any and all these cases, one thing is sure. All Israel will be saved. And so it's most likely, in order to stave off confusion, that hutos refers to what immediately precedes it, that being the entering of the totality of the nations. Since this is most evidently the case, Israel is presently constituted of a minority of Jews and a majority of Gentiles. But that's not going to be the case in the end. The present Israel of God are Jews and Gentiles in Christ whose boast is neither circumcision, ritual speaking, or uncircumcision, the lack of it. But their boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who can neither be called circumcision or uncircumcision in the ethnic physical sense of those words, but instead together they're called an altogether new creation. So given the thrust of Paul's argument here, Though the salvation of all Israel, including the broken off branches, especially the broken off branches here, 
is what he's talking about, or the hardened part of Israel, ought to serve as an effective deterrent of a falsely directed enthusiasm of a certain group of boastful Gentile Christians. Therefore, in closing, the horizon before our eyes, the eyes of our heart, the horizon that God is placing before the eyes of our enlightened hearts. is an eschatological salvation of all of Israel at the parousia of Jesus Christ in addition to the final salvation of all the Gentile nations. That's the horizon in front of our eyes in Romans 11. The vision, as opposed to horizon, the vision before our eyes is of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Heard that before. As the Israel of God now consists of a minority of Jewish Christians and a majority of Gentile Christians, at and after the parousia, the coming of the liberator from Zion to take away ungodliness from Jacob, Israel will consist of all Gentiles and all Jews, otherwise known as all human beings, all humanity. So from here, we have to go to the word pas, P-A-S, all Israel, pas. The word is pas, all Israel. Daniel B. Wallace, in his book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, said nouns with pas, P-A-S, or holos, which means whole or entire, nouns with pas, Holos, etc., do not need the article to be definite. So we have all Israel, which is like having the article in front of it, the all, which means all without exception. And so all of Israel, without exception, will be saved. So he says, nouns with pas or holos need not be need not the article to be definite. For either the class as a whole all, the class as a whole, or distributed, meaning every is being specified. Either way, he says, in pas, with an article or without, he says a generic force is given in such constructions. Again, I don't even know if I'm going to do this in Romans when I exegete it. If I gave every word, we'd be here for like 18 years. I might not do that, but I'm just showing you that Every word is extremely important in exposition. So then I look up the word generic. The word all is a generic, has a generic force to it. So I go to my favorite book next to the Bible, which is called the dictionary. And generic means relating to or descriptive of an entire group or class. So we're talking about all Israel here without any exceptions. We're talking about the remnant according to the election of grace plus the broken off branches. We're talking about all the people of Israel according to the flesh that have ever lived. But they are only saved when all the Gentiles, the influx of all the pagan nations comes in to populate Israel. 
You talk about immigration. Incidentally, the Old Testament scriptures, it's impossible to escape. Israel is told over and over and over again to be kind to the strangers that come for refuge to Israel, to be kind to the strange. Now, I know it also. There is, on the other hand, a vetting because there was a group of people that came and pretended to be immigrants, but they had intentions of conquest. And Joshua had to discern that in Joshua 9. So, Both of the sides of this kind of thing, which I'm not descending into. Nobody made me a judge or an arbiter. Thank God. That's too weighty a task for me. I can't judge anybody. If I start to, I'm burdened down and depressed immediately. Because I don't have that job. I have a job to love everybody, not judge anybody. So I'm not, but I'm just saying that all the debates we hear, there is a rational solution to them that's not found on the common ground of either group bias it's above that it's a wisdom that's above that it's a wisdom that's above that so the word generic means the entire group or class all israel you can't slice it any other way All Israel is going to be saved, and all the nations are going to be saved. All humanity is going to be saved. This is what I'm talking about in Better Call Paul. Better Call Paul. What are you saying, Paul? Are you saying the same thing that John seems to be saying in an apocalyptic vision, that the Lamb of God, slaughtered and risen and standing, is the Savior of all humankind and the Redeemer of all history and all creation? Seems like he is. But this is only the 108th shot at it. 108 people say, wow, that's a lot. He must be really a... No, you know what? When you hit it 108 times, it means you're not quite getting it. You could have gotten it in 30 times. So it it, it reveals, if anything, my inadequacy as a teacher, that I've had to shoot it 108 times. So, maybe on the 109th, we'll hit a home run. Or as Kutch did, his first grand slam. There's still good stuff happening in baseball, even though there's no way in hell the Pirates are going to make it to any playoff positions. So, in closing again, here's what I want to hit maybe tomorrow night. I read in, when I read All Israel Will Be Saved, I read, I think it was A.T. Robertson, he said, but we must never forget Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. So when all Israel, the implication there, all Israel is saved, that doesn't mean all Israel, because not all Israel is Israel. But that fails to reach into the book of Romans in a little more depth, because if you put not Israel, all Israel, together with what Hosea said, in the place where I said, not my people. In other words, there's a part of Israel that are not my people. The same place, that same people that I said, not my people, will be called the sons of the living God. So the part that is not Israel... In Romans 9, 6, if you put it with Romans nine twenty six, especially, 
That part that's exactly called not Israel presently, not right presently is all Israel, Israel. Only the Israel that's in union Christ with Christ is Israel. The rest is not presently Israel. But those who are not presently Israel are the same as the hardened part of Israel. They're the same as the broken off branches. But in the same place where God says, not my people, lo ami, he says, the sons of the living God. Not only are you my people, will you be my people that were once not my people. You will be known as the sons of the living God. So yes, I will remember. With all Lutheran scholars and all justification by faith preachers and very able exegetes, I will remember Romans 9, 6. That presently, not all Israel is the Israel of God. But those who are called not Israel now will one day be called the sons of the living God. Why? Because God takes the hardened stony heart out and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And the heart of flesh isn't just a human heart. It's the beating heart of the human God-man, Jesus Christ. If you get that... It's not because you got a teacher that can explain it. It's because you got the Holy Spirit that will illuminate it to you. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. A challenge, for sure, to hear what Paul is saying under the divine inspiration of the Spirit of the crucified Messiah, the Spirit of God. We are learning in a way that seems sometimes to be sharply but then gently, obscurely, but then clearly. We're learning how to think beyond the restricted, limited, common sense of group bias, to think with the mind of Christ and the uncommon wisdom of a God of unrestricted love. May this be what dominates us, dominates our thinking, controls our actions, For we know that it is God in us, both willing and doing, of his own good pleasure.